Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe tomorrow is Friday, and it's also hard to believe that we're into the start of September. Where has the time gone? But one thing for sure is that um, I've always made it a priority to um, podcast as regularly as I can to share with you all what I enjoy learning most about, history. And as I've said many times before, yes, history is fun to learn about. Yes, you can definitely learn things about um, subjects that you didn't know before that are worth learning about, but at the same time, history does teach us that um, certain matters, historical matters, while yes, we know they uh, were not pleasant matters, at the same time, we still have to be reminded that those matters were not pleasant, not only for the time that they took place in, but they were just not pleasant at all. So the way I see it with history is that it's, it can be a double-edged sword. In other words, it can, be, uh, it can work to your advantage or it can work in the opposite way, but it, even if it works in the opposite way, the objective would still be to learn as much as you can about what happened that was not for that was not for the right reasons and not for the better so that in the present day take whatever you learn from that um, topic that um, you would hope that would um, never happen again in the future i guess the best example i can um, speak on that behalf would be of the uh, Holocaust that happened um, in World War II. I don't know how many Jewish survivors um, there are of a Jewish faith uh, still alive uh, who experienced the Holocaust. I do know that um, I believe she's still alive, um, Otto Frank's uh, stepdaughter, Ava Schloss. And the reason I know about her is, for one, I... uh, had done some research on Otto Frank, and I didn't realize that he um, lived up until his early 90s. Uh, he passed away in the early 80s, but sadly, he lost all of his um, family members in the Holocaust, uh, most notably his wife and daughters, uh, most notably Anne Frank. But when he remarried, um, he remarried a woman whom had lost her husband and son in that tragedy and but yet she and her daughter survived and uh, basically for Otto Frank it was like getting another family getting a family that he lost but gaining a family that still remained intact even though part of the family was no longer there but the bottom line is is that um, I don't know how many um, people there are still alive who survived the Holocaust and I can't imagine what trauma that brought on them, knowing that they lost not just their livelihood, they lost family members, they lost friends, they lost everything. And you can't blame them for wanting to start a new life elsewhere, say, come in, you know, in America and all. So until we've been in their shoes, it's kind of hard to be able to describe or be able to relate to what they went through. Yes, we can read about the stories yes we can cringe we can cover our mouths uh, we can shake our heads all we want but maybe it's fair to say that if we haven't been in someone else's shoes who experienced um, the horrors up close and personal then it's a it's a whole nother um, it's a whole nother um, dimension so that's the way I have to remind myself with history is that, uh, yes, it's worth learning about, but at the same time, we have to be reminded that not all of history has been pleasant and that, um, and that when you watch a documentary on television, it does make you appreciate um, what, not so much it makes you appreciate what happened, but it makes you get a better appreciation for what, for what you as an individual maybe didn't have to go through or deal with, but understanding that, hey, there were others before you who went through this stuff, and it did leave scars with them for long periods in, throughout their life. Well, anyways, uh, we should be focusing uh, on what we've been talking about for the uh, past four uh, podcast episodes into this series, uh, The War of 1812 in Wisconsin, The Battle for Prairie Duchenne by Mary Elise Antoine. 
this episode that we're going to be discussing about is going to focus on U.S. Indian agents in Prairie du Chien. You know, I just said agents a second ago. So does that mean, folks, that there was more than one agent um, whose presence was felt at Prairie du Chien? Yes. So our first leadoff question for this uh, segment is going to be the following. What new head U.S. Indian agent would go about deciding whom should serve as agent for the Upper Mississippi and Western Great Lakes? Or rather, I should say for the Upper Mississippi region, as well as Western Great Lakes. Let me ask you this. Could it have been, uh, what are the following uh, choices that you all think, or in terms of answers? Choice A, was it uh, William Henry Harrison? Choice B, Meriwether Lewis? Or choice C, William Clark. Choice C, William Clark. Well, um, does William Clark have a lot of knowledge about Prairie du Chien? No, he doesn't. But that doesn't mean that he's not qualified for other, in terms of um, other duties. Okay, if William Clark doesn't have what he, what I would say the highest level or, or a general understanding behind Prairie du Chien, is he going to be able to turn to someone else who has a better understanding of the upper Mississippi region, including the western Great Lakes? Yes. Whom can William Clark turn to? He turns to a fellow named Josiah Dunham, who happens to be a commander not just a commander, folks, but a commander of American forces at Fort Mackinac. And, of course, we know that Mackinac is in Michigan because you have uh, Mackinac Island, Mackinac's, the Mackinac Bridge, which, of course, there is no Mackinac Bridge at this time, uh, but in later years there would be a bridge known as the Mackinac Bridge, which connects uh, the mainland of Michigan being the northernmost part of Michigan's mainland to the Upper Peninsula. But anyways, Josiah Dunham is commander of American forces at Fort Mackinac. And William Clark um, turns to him for advice on whom ought to be chief agent in the Upper Mississippi and Western Great Lakes regions. Well, who does uh, Josiah Dunham recommend... Um, whom does Josiah Dunham recommend uh, William Clark? In other words, whom does he go about recommending to William Clark? His name is John Campbell, who just so happens to be in Prairie du Chien. Okay, this is good. John Campbell, not only is he in Prairie du Chien, but he has enough of an understanding of the area to where, based upon his record, he might have already established a success with the tribes in and around the upper Mississippi region. So John Campbell is currently serving at this time as, peace, as a, a justice of the peace for St. Clair County. And he had also come in contact with Zebulon Pike and his crew. So John Campbell is really no stranger uh, to the comings and goings of people as well as Indian tribes in and around uh, the upper Mississippi and most notably Prairie du Chien. And Josiah Dunham, not only does he know John Campbell, but he also knows for a direct fact that John Campbell is the right fit for this uh, post, being the uh, head American um, Indian agent for the upper Mississippi in large part because Josiah um, Dunham knows just how deep uh, John Campbell's connections are to this area in general. So that leads me to my next question for you all. Exactly how deep were John Campbell's connections to the Upper Mississippi and the Western Great Lakes? Well, for starters, he had personal and business relations with a number of Indian tribes, considering he had his own established trading post along the St. Peter's River, around 17, along the St. Peter's River. And if any of you all are wondering where the St. Peter's River is, I looked it up on a map. 
in the, in the book that uh, Mary Elise Antoine wrote. And this river itself is uh, not far from the Mississippi River. So if any of you all want to know exactly where the St. Peter's River is, uh, just remember that it's not far from, um, from the Mississippi River. In around 1790, the year after George Washington became president, John Campbell established a relationship with a Dakota Sioux Indian woman, which led to marriage and a family, including a broad understanding behind the Sioux language at large. And shortly after his arrival into Prairie du Chien, Mr. Campbell himself obtained two lots in the main village and also acquired two lots on Mackinac Island come 1805. You know, we have to remember this, folks. It's one thing for there to be traders established in this region. You know, it's one thing to have good relations between you as a trader or as a group of traders in your own company with a certain um, number of Indian tribes. But wouldn't it be fair to say that if you really want to establish some good relations long-term, that perhaps it, that perhaps it would be best to consider having um, Englishmen, most notably uh, men from Britain, marrying women of Indian tribes. Think about this. The two um, sides blend together, and by blending in together through marriage, their alliances become even stronger. And it also could perhaps reduce the number of uh, potential issues down the road where, say, one or two Englishmen decide to turn their backs on the tribes that they've been trading with, all for personal glorification. So in other words, um, when in this case, when Indians, when Indian women and British men marry, they are preserving, it's not so much they're preserving their heritage, but they are preserving their status, not only within, pardon me, not only within their communities, but they're preserving their status as to whom has rightful ownership of unclaimed territory in, along the frontier. In other words, unclaimed territory that perhaps we as the United States have, have thought we claimed, but in fact we didn't. And yes, it would make practical sense for uh, John Campbell to uh, obtain some lots in the main village of Prairie du Chien, as, as well as acquiring lots on Mackinac Island. Now, these lots are not for uh, vacation purposes, folks. They are lots for essential business. In other words, establishing business between um, British people as well as for Indian, or the British traders as well as for the Indian tribes, but also the potential for um, families to um, not just connect with one another, but through marriage, which will strengthen the strongholds that have already been in possession most notably of, uh, of the Indian, of the um, Indian uh, tribes. It is fair to say that Prairie du Chien was where a lot of the happenings took place. What I mean by happenings, folks, is that, is that Prairie du Chien became the place where all the traders and their employees knew one another. It could be fair to say that perhaps Prairie du Chien was the place where, where everyone knows your name and they're always glad you came. I know that might sound corny, but to me, if you have a good reason for going to Prairie du Chen, and you know people there, and you've never burnt a bridge, then it seemed then to me it would be fair to say that you're always welcomed back as long as you play by the rules. John Campbell's uh, travels also took him to uh, St. Joseph Island in Michigan, where he got connected with the Michelamackinac Company traders. It does pay to have connections in many places, folks. Can't put all your eggs in one basket, especially with one group of people, but at the same time, if you have multiple eggs in multiple baskets, and you know it's for all the right reasons, then yes, 
the more business ties you have with Indian tribes, not only in the upper Mississippi, but around the western Great Lakes, the better your security will be, not just for the short term, but long term. 1808. What's important about 1808? Well, for one, Thomas Jefferson's uh, presidency is coming to a near end. But the start of 1808 sees John Campbell get commissioned as an Indian agent for the Upper Mississippi. You know, I, I would say that Thomas Jefferson has seen a lot in his uh, presidency. And the year before, in 1807, I'll point this out, because this will play um, as a huge factor in, by the time 1812 comes around, and it might have uh, played somewhat of a factor in, um, in what we now know as Wisconsin, but in 1807, Thomas Jefferson signed into law the Embargo Act. Long story short, some of you have probably heard me talk about this from previous uh, podcasts on other uh, topics, but when Thomas Jefferson signed the Embargo Act of 1807, he basically wanted to uh, cut off trade with Britain and France. In other words, our sailors were being impressed on the high seas. The British were taking our sailors and forcing them to uh, fight alongside the British against their own will because they claimed they were in such desperate shortage of sailors. They basically were plundering the seas, basically cutting off our ability to trade freely as a nation. Jefferson thought by signing this embargo act that it would... Um, Pretty much, um, it would destroy uh, Britain's ability to trade not only with America, but perhaps with another nation. And the same for France. It would make them uh, realize that, hey, we need to stop impressing American sailors. Maybe they mean, maybe they're trying to tell us something. Well, long story short of it, folks, it didn't. Uh, America's economy was crippled by this embargo act. It put thousands of New Englanders out of jobs. Think about it, folks, uh, rope makers, caulkers, um, the people, you know, who were shipbuilders, who, who built masts, who, um, who built the keels. I mean, the whole nine yards with ships. Everybody was truly uh, impacted um, in New England to the point where um, when ships arrived in, um, goods rotted, uh, trades you know, tr trade in general couldn't happen. Um, the comings and goings of uh, goods leaving in and out of ports, most notably like Boston, Massachusetts, Newport, Rhode Island, um, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, New York. They were all literally um, impacted by this to the point where um, the New England states thought about seceding from the Union. Keep this in mind, folks. Secession just didn't happen with the Civil War. There had been many of other instances in our history leading up to um, or just before the Civil War time where certain parts of our nation thought about seceding. So anyways, yes, Jefferson's presidency was an, it was an interesting one to say the least, especially in the years after the uh, Louisiana Purchase had taken place. But in 1808, John Campbell got commissioned as an Indian agent for the Upper Mississippi. Okay, so it's one thing for John Campbell to get commissioned as an Indian agent. What duties do you think were required for Mr. Campbell to implement in his new position? Well, for starters, he needs an interpreter. In other words, he needs someone who has an understanding of the Indian language or languages along the upper Mississippi, most notably um, with the uh, Dakota Sioux. He also has to go about ordering goods for, dis for, distri for distributing purposes. In other words, you know, he's got to find, he's got to know, okay, what goods do we need to um, bring, what goods do the traders themselves need to bring into uh, Indian territory so that peaceful trade um, acquisitions can take place without any kind of violence whatsoever. And how about meeting directly with tribal chiefs including um, issuing trade licenses. So in other words, Mr. Campbell's got to, he's got to get to know the head, um, the head chiefs of the uh, tribes. You know, the Sioux are a big Indian population. 
So there's more than just the Dakota Sioux, but he's got to uh, meet with, he would have to meet with a fair number of uh, head tribal men from the different branches of the Sioux Nation to get an understanding of, um, of what they were about. You know, what things did they depend upon that they could not find on their own, um, in their own territory? You know, after all, yes, history has told us that disease, unfortunately, did kill more Indians than going to war. But when times were a little bit, I don't know if I'd say simpler, or when times were maybe peaceful, Indians and Europeans did find um, some common ground by uh, through means of bartering, uh, trading in terms of, uh, you know, each side benefiting from something that the other didn't have. It is fair to say that when the Europeans first came to the New World that the Indians had never seen guns or rifles before. They had relied upon bows and arrows, which were great, but I think it's fair to say that the Indians probably saw guns or rifles as a better means of, um, for shooting purposes in terms of um, killing their targets, meaning the, the animals that they hunted for which they were dependent upon. And does anybody know what animals that the uh, Dakota Sioux would have been dependent upon? Not just for meat purposes, for eating, but what about for clothing, or especially in the wintertime? How about the buffalo? How about the grizzly bears? How about, you know, other animals like, say, gazelles, or uh, what we might call pronghorns? Those were the kinds of animals that Lewis and Clark um Meriwether Lewis and William Clark and their crew encountered while on their uh, journey west to the Pacific Ocean. Now, besides working directly with the Sioux and the Chippewa at Prairie du Chen, John Campbell also dealt with tribes, with Indian tribes living around Green Bay and western Lake Michigan. It's fair to say that John Campbell has probably got the whole nine yards. Well, you know, for all of his success, sadly, um, something does happen to John Campbell. I can tell you this much, it's not a scandal that he was in. It has nothing to do with a scandal. It has nothing to do with um, accepting a bribe. It has nothing to do with, um, with uh, engaging in any kind of a conspiratorial act that would um, undermine someone else's uh, well-being under his supervision or someone um, whom he had had prior contact with. But my question to you is this, would John Campbell run into trouble outside of Prairie du Chien? Yes. Mr. Campbell traveled to Mackinac come early August of 1808 on business purposes. But to make a very, very long story short, A fellow who was in the same place as John Campbell was by the name of Robert, I mean not Robert, Redford Crawford, rather, I should say, whom was a trader on the upper Mississippi himself. He had overheard a discussion in which John Campbell was involved in. And apparently Mr. Campbell, in the eyes of Redford Crawford, made a remark about the Northwest Company for whom Redford was a, was a part of, and in Redford's eyes, the remark made was offensive to him. We don't know exactly what words John Campbell said, but, if, but for all we know, Redford Crawford could have taken this matter entirely out of context. The remark raged him so much to the point where he confronted John Campbell about it and decided that the only way to resolve the problem was to challenge Campbell to a duel. Dueling, I tell you, that to me was a dangerous thing back then. But then again, it was a gentleman's way of resolving problems. Heaven forbid you sit down and try to, you know, work this out through means of mediation process, nonviolent. Well, what would happen if you uh, didn't show up for uh, dueling? You would have been frowned upon. You would have been called a chicken, a wimp. What happened if you did show up, but you um, 
but you opened up your pistol and dropped the uh, bullets to the ground. Uh, you wouldn't have been ridiculed. It would have just meant that, okay, I showed up, but today I'm just not ready to fire. On the other hand, not everybody had that choice, or rather luxury, I should say. So, for John Campbell, he agrees to the duel. It takes place along Lake Huron's British territory. It didn't take place at, um, at uh, Mackinac, and the reason for that was because the uh, territorial governor there um, outlawed um, dueling on his property. And as great as that was, sadly, it still didn't prevent the inevitable from happening, despite the fact that it took place elsewhere. So yes, it took place along Lake Huron, uh, British, the British side of Lake Huron, where sadly John Campbell got mortally wounded, where come two days later on August the 13th of 1808, he died and would get buried at Mackinac Island. Believe it or not, while fighting for his life, just before he died, John Campbell did ask for someone else to take his place as U.S. Indian agent for the Upper Mississippi region. Whom do you think John Campbell asked to um, take his place? He knew this person, and he knew him well enough that he met the uh, criteria for the post. His name was Julian Dubuque. And it was Governor Meriwether Lewis whom approved Dubuque as a new agent for the Upper Mississippi. You know, that person's name should be familiar. Um, hopefully it's familiar to a lot of you because we have a state in the Midwest. It wasn't even part of the Northwest Territory. Matter of fact, this state is just west of Illinois. As a matter of fact, the state itself borders Illinois. It also borders Minnesota. It also borders Missouri. It also borders uh, South Dakota and Nebraska. It's a lot of states there for this one state to be uh, bordering. All right, think about it. Illinois, Minnesota, um, Nebraska, South Dakota, Missouri, and I believe... Um, AKA Wisconsin borders the state too, so that would make six states. What state would that be, folks? How about Iowa? So, as for Julian Dubuque, he is born in 1762 in Quebec, Canada's Three Rivers District. He came to Michilimackinac, Mil a little tongue twister there, folks, <laughs> around 1780 where he worked as a clerk in the fur trade um, sector. He would become the first European man to settle in present-day Iowa. Dubuque, Iowa, folks, named after none other than Mr. Julian Dubuque. As a matter of fact, the first village in Iowa was named after him, Dubuque. And if any of you all uh, want to know exactly where Dubuque is in Iowa, it's east of Des Moines, being Iowa's capital, Dubuque is right on the Illin on the Iowa Illinois line. It's um, not far from um, what you call the uh, Quad Cities area of Illinois, most notably like Davenport, uh, Galesburg, uh, which are just west of Rockford. So, and that's just an indication of uh, where Dubuque is in relation to some of the. Um, cities I mentioned that are right on the Iowa-Illinois line. So Julian Dubuque goes about successfully establishing ties to Indian tribes, most notably of the Sac and the Fox. What did Julian Dubuque obtain sole rights to, considering just how strong his friendship was with the Sac and the Fox Indian tribes? Does it have anything to do with natural resources? Okay, what do I mean by natural resources? Could it, does it have anything to do with, say, um, coal? Would it have anything to do with iron ore? Or would it have to do with lead? The answer is lead. The Sac and the Fox Indian tribes granted Julian Dubuque sole rights 
to mining lead on the fox lands south of Prairie du Chien. It's fair to say that Julian Dubuque had, a, had, built, had built solid relations with these tribes that he lived by the creed or rather the motto that it's better to give than to receive. In other words, his concerns were, okay, the Indians, these two tribes have given me probably the best gift I could ask for. I had to earn it, and that is to obtain um, their consent to uh, mine the lead south of Prairie du Chien. But what can I do in return for them? To give gifts to them as a token of their, of their appreciation or of their thanks, and also to provide them with essentials all year round. So what city um, became the number one market for, um, for uh, the lead mining uh, business? Was it, um, which city was it? Was it, uh, it's along the Mississippi River. This state hasn't been admitted into the Union yet and won't be for probably about another 12 years um, in eight, come 1820. But the city that this state uh, will become known as was um, St. Louis, Missouri. So St. Louis at this time, at, at, around this time, became the number one market for transporting lead downriver. Julian Dubuque had um, come to the realization that it was easier to transport lead downriver versus upriver. The only thing I could think of is that perhaps the currents weren't as bad going downriver like they were going um, in an upward direction. Did Julian Dubuque have long tenure as an agent? Unfortunately, um, he didn't have long tenure, but, there, but here once again it has nothing to do with any kind of improper conduct. Sadly, he was stricken with an illness that took over his abilities to carry out daily functions. Sadly, he died in March of 1810 just shy of um, turning 50. He wasn't f just 50 yet, but we could say that he lived to be in his late 40s, which perhaps at that time maybe was old age. But in a short period of time, he, his uh, impact was greatly felt, and it was for all the right reasons. Now, who becomes um, the new president in March of 1809? Thomas Jefferson's presidency has ended. And another Virginian becomes uh, president, James Madison. So prior to James Madison, though, becoming president, what changes in the upper Mississippi River Valley take place? What changes do you think could, could there be? This is one that maybe most of you all probably would not think happened, but it did. Congress went about dividing the Indiana Territory into two separate governments. So the Indiana Territory um, basically still remains intact as being land east of the Wabash River. And there is a place in Indiana known as uh, Wabash, um, not far, just on the outskirts of Fort Wayne. And uh, Fort Wayne, um, I know, is not far from the uh, Indiana-Ohio line. Territory west of the Wabash and Mississippi Rivers would become known as the Illinois Territory. So, exactly what all does the Illinois Territory include, folks? Well, it includes not only just Illinois, but it includes Wisconsin, part of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. That's a lot of territory right there to go as far north into what we now know as the, the UP, or a.k.a. Upper Peninsula of Michigan. How about as well as northeastern Minnesota? And then you can't forget Prairie du Chien and La Baie, or what we now know as a.k.a. present-day Green Bay, Wisconsin. The creation of the Illinois Territory led to uncertainty over whom would take charge of Indian agent affairs in the upper Mississippi Valley. So Congress does have its hands full. Even the, a new administration itself would have its hands full as well. 
The bigger question is going to be, though, over time, is how to go about resolving these current issues to where it doesn't become, it doesn't get to the point where it's so fractured that we don't have a unified front, even as we're trying to expand as a nation. Well, given that Julian Dubuque has passed on, whom will go about replacing him? Let me ask you this. Does, would anybody know the person whom replaced Julian Dubuque? His name was uh, Nicholas Bolvin. Bolvin. I want to. One could say Boylvin, but it, it's French. Uh, Bolvin. He worked. Ironically, he worked under Dubuque in helping establish relations amongst the Sac and the Fox tribes. So he's basically no stranger to um, diplomacy affairs. And besides contact with the Sac and the Fox tribes. Boalvin also had contact, or let alone, I should say, interactions with other tribes in and around Prairie du Chien. Hey, the more contact you have with other Indian tribes, the better, um, the better one would become long-term in understanding how to go about uh, conducting treaties. Well, not just treaties, but going about conducting um better relations, rather, I should say, because remember, an individual himself can't conduct a treaty. The treaties themselves have to be conducted by the United States government with a two-thirds two -thirds majority vote consent of the United States Senate. So, to Nicholas Boalvin, he saw Prairie du Chien as a center to how many tribes? Was it more than five? Was it less than five? Or was it more than ten? The answer was uh, is five. Which five tribes do you think the, would have been the ones that would have established the key uh, focal nucleus, or rather, I should say, center of uh, Prairie du Chien? How about the Sioux? How about the Fox? How about the Sac? How about the Menominee? and the Winnebago. Whom did Boalvin uh, ask to get appointed as Indian agent for the Upper Mississippi prior to Julian Dubuque's passing? How about Meriwether Lewis, of all people? Tragically, um, Meriwether Lewis died. And I found this uh, hard to believe. I learned about this some years back when I, um, around the time of the uh, centennial of when uh, Lewis and Clark's uh, expedition began. I learned that sadly, uh, Meriwether Lewis um, dealt with a lot of um, internal um, issues in private to the point where um, his sanity was not. Um, I don't mean it the wrong way, but his sanity was not all there. And sadly, he um, died by means of taking his own life, a.k.a. suicide. So, you know, what's sad, folks, is that even back then, you know, back in that time, we didn't have counseling centers to help people out who were experiencing trauma. In other words, many people hid their problems. They probably hid them so well that nobody would have ever suspected it. But long story short, that's a sad thing, too, uh, even in today's world, that there can be plenty of people out there we know who look fine and look wonderful on the outside, and you wouldn't think anything was wrong with them, but sometimes the opposite happens. It's a very, I mean, you know, when I read that about Meriwether Lewis, that, um, that really, um, I was really uh, galvanized by that in a way because you just never would think of something like that happening during that time years ago, but it did happen. So for Nicholas Boalvin, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say for Nicholas Boalvin, uh, the death of Meriwether Lewis, regardless of how it happened, especially considering that he took his own life, was very um, shocking for Nicholas Baldwin, because now 
he's got to uh, realize now, hey, um, what's going to happen? Am I going to have to take on some other duties that were not previously assigned to me before? And the answer is yes. While Vin will serve, or rather I should say, continue to serve as an interim, a.k.a. acting U.S. Indian agent for the Upper Mississippi, he goes above and beyond to meet with many of the tribes in their villages, along with maintaining peace between the tribes and the traders. We should keep in mind that while, yes, most relations between tribes and traders were good, it is fair to say that there were some traders, maybe not just as individuals, but individuals working uh, for a company, whom would have done anything in their power to try to take advantage of Indian tribes. So thank heavens that Nicholas Blalvin is there to try to maintain the peace between the tribes and the traders whom are at odds with each other. Did Nicholas Blalvin run into political conflicts from within the U.S. government? <laughs> well, I think it's fair to say that conflict was inevitable even in the early years of our republic's existence, and it's still in existence today except maybe conflict, well, I don't know. Conflict has been around since the beginning of time, and even since the beginning of time, conflict itself has always been an issue. But yes, Nicholas Boalvin did run into political conflicts from within his own government. He dealt with such conflicts that ranged from reimbursement affairs. After all, he went on a fair number of missions to uh, supply uh, necessary items to Indians, to the, uh, to the large number of Indian tribes, not only uh, along the uh, Mississippi, but to the Indian tribes uh, mentioned earlier who uh, were the key nucleus of Prairie du Chin. He also had to deal with, um, think about it, I mean, he showed his records to those in Washington, and he never got really fully reimbursed. Is it fair to say that those in Washington didn't appreciate what he was doing? Yeah, it doesn't make it right, but there were those who, who were more concerned about their own personal agendas. How about political games where those on the other side were hesitant? Not just hesitant about, about um, going one step forward versus two steps backwards, but how about those whom were hesitant about building a fur factory at Prairie du Chien? For Nicholas Balvin, he truly believed that if a fur factory was built at Prairie du Chien, it would reduce whatever levels of conflict were already going on. You know, after all, is it fair to say that both sides need furs? Sure. You know, it's not just wearing, um, a, what do you call it, a top-of-the-line fashion hat made out of fur, but furs are essential in terms of um, an extra layer of clothing when the weather gets really cold outside. Then how about the, the current state of relations amongst the Indian tribes visiting Prairie du Chien? So it is fair to say that Nicholas Balvin is running into a lot of uncertainty. You know, yes, relations are good right now with a fair number of Indian tribes and their uh, trader agents. But it doesn't mean that peace will last forever. Basically, in a nutshell, not everyone can always live happily ever after, regardless of the circumstances. I think history has shown that on many of occasions, not just for United States history, but world history. Well, per his report findings on the Upper Mississippi, uh, Nicholas Boalvin appeared to know more about the peoples of Prairie du Chien in the Upper Mississippi versus any other elected American official. And I agree with that 100%. The report findings per Boalvin indicated that more Indians were coming into the prairie for trading purposes. Okay? If more Indians are coming into the into the prairie, a.k.a. Prairie du Chien, for trading purposes, is that potential for, um, for any, uh, what do you call it, is, it poten is there a greater potential that uh, conflict could arise over, most notably, supply and demand? Absolutely. In other words, 
if you don't if you come into the prairie with a limited supply of a certain good and you've got more people demanding the demand is going to is going to exceed the supply of what is available if you have a larger supply of, of something and all of a sudden there's not enough demand for it then the decrease in demand will outweigh the overall amount of supply of the goods or, ra or rather not just the good but the goods themselves that were brought in so along the frontier folks we are dealing with issues of supply and demand economics 101 here so you know for Nicholas Boivin his findings not only have indicated that more Indians are coming into the prairies for uh, trading purposes but this also means that they that there probably ought to be some new jobs put into play how about like a blacksmith in other words you know a blacksmith or blacksmiths would be probably needed to help uh, repair um, existing um, items that uh, just need some um, what do you call it? They need a new touch. They need new. Um, they need. They need new fixing, basically. Or how about a new supply of nails, to, um, you know, for hammering purposes. You know, blacks. You know, a blacksmith's job isn't boring. A blacksmith always has to do something to ensure that his, his customers, walk away with what they need, regardless of the season. And then how about other. Um, you know goods you know goods themselves are are important how in order to it's not just bringing in goods for the indians to to have but these goods w would help keep relations intact oh we got an assortment of goods here folks like whiskey salt gunpowder tobacco knives wampum wampum are, are the beads that you know can be used uh, for jewelry purposes. Beads were wampum was also used as a form of currency. I learned that at Jamestown one time I was there. And then how about metals? And we're not just talking about um, you know your own personal metal, but how about metals that were used as a means of um, winning the peace or the friendship amongst one European nation with X, Y, and Z number of Indian tribes. All of these goods, folks, it's one thing just to have a good or a particular service, a.k.a. commodity, but having the goods in, represents that, hey, we have established relations amongst this um, other group of people, a.k.a. European uh, civilization or European uh, men, Britain, but the goods themselves will ensure that we are on the same page as they are. They provide us with something, we provide them with something in return. In other words, it's a union. A union that's not meant to be entered into lightly. What two Indian tribes uh, faced conflict with Americans on their lands? The Sac and the Fox tribes were the ones that faced uh, the greater uh, conflict. Well, after Julian Dubuque died, large scores of men went about mining the lead mines. And this is a violation here, folks, because they did so without their direct consent. They had given proper consent to Julian Dubuque, but after Julian Dubuque died, those who came in obviously didn't seem to give they didn't seem to care, rather, about what had taken place beforehand. They were, to them, it was all about I, me, myself. So, Nicholas Boivin is obviously not very happy with the matter, and rightfully so. But instead of uh, going to war over it, he does a good thing by requesting that the Sac and the Fox tribes meet directly with William Clark in resolving the conflict. I'm not sure what the end result was there, but obviously uh, it didn't uh, entail in war. Now, to wrap things up here, um, you know, as the start as the start of the uh, second decade of the 19th century goes into play, 
there's still there still is uncertainty not just on the east coast but there's uncertainty out on the frontier not just the northwest territory but what would one day become the great plains or the upper midwest there is uncertainty so were many if not all other indian tribes along the upper mississippi in a state of uncertainty yes for starters there had been rumors already spreading about potential war between the United States and Britain to concerns about overall supply of trade goods in need amongst the many Indian tribes whom anxiously awaited on which country, aka nation, would deliver goods in a timely manner to keep alliances intact. These are trying times, not just for our young nation, but for what lies ahead on the western frontiers. The western frontier folks will face war in the War of 1812. It won't face war in the same way that in, in the same way that war was conducted when we tried to invade Canada or in the same way that War was conducted in the aftermath of uh, Washington being burned in August of 1814 to the Battle of Baltimore that uh, saved our uh, republic. In other words, this war that will soon ensue will become America's second war for independence. But at the same time, it's not just so much America's second war for independence against England, it's also a war as to whether or not a United States will be one United States. In other words, we still have a foreign country along our western frontier that obviously doesn't want to leave, that, that feels as though she has a right to claim territory that we had not um, claimed earlier. In other words, she's not ready to give up her might just yet. In other words, you know, she's not ready to surrender. She still wants to prove to us that, hey, you all may have beaten us 30 years ago, but we still have advantages over you all that you can only dream of having. Well, when I'm on the air again next, we are going to talk about a war. It may not, just, may not be just yet the War of 1812, but we are going to talk about we are going to talk about a declaration of war, but we're also going to talk about a rebellion. If I talk about it anymore, there may not be any need to have another podcast. Well, thank you again for your time, as always. I look forward to being back on the air again soon. Thank you again to all of you, my faithful 101 listeners, for making my time all the worth, all the more worth the while and sharing with you all history that to most of us has been forgotten, history that had only been told in, in the textbooks in uh, snippets. In other words, there was no full-scale uh, discussion about it. I didn't really even know anything about the War of 1812 in Wisconsin until I read this book last year. So that's why I feel it's necessary for me to share it with you all. Thank you again, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon. Stay safe.